Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about perversion as diversion. What does that mean? Perversion as diversion. And I think what I mean by it is that I want to talk about the concept of perversion itself as an idea of turning something away, taking it out of one course and onto another course, or if you prefer to be more judgmental in your thinking, taking something off course or off the quote unquote right course. That's what I mean by perversion. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, this episode is going to carry an explicit warning tag, and probably you might look at the title and say, well, of course, right? And I'm not going to say that as I get through this conversation ways, I'm not going to go some places in the main body of this uh, inappropriate conversation that won't get too close to the line or cross the line. But truthfully, the reason that I already know I've got an explicit language tag has more to do with the different drummer and just reading song titles from our different drummer, who's a musician this week, than it will anything in the body of this. So this is not going to be a prurient or titillating talk, I wouldn't think. Now, instead, what I want to talk about is how we understand perversion today, how that might differ from what our understanding would have been in the past, and whether we can point to perversion as something concrete and uh, say, well, there it is, and it's an absolute of some sort, when that line itself has always moved. So let's deal a little bit with what we might call our legendary concepts of Victorian ideas of proper sexuality. I'm not going to suggest that these ideas are actually true, that we may get an opportunity before the end of the year to challenge some of these concepts and their validity. In fact, if we take as a given what we might consider to be the Puritan ideal or a certain heightened Victorian understanding of quote unquote normal sexuality, I think you can get a sense of where I think I would draw the line on on perversion as something that we should be judgmental about. So let's say that we're in a period of time when there's a heightened uh, Augustinian concept of sex and original sin. So the notion in society would be that that sex should only be performed for procreative reasons, even among married couples, and that even then the pleasure from the sex act is inherently sinful, and that that um, sense of pleasure has something to do with the basic debasement of humanity altogether, that if only we could have sex with each other in a completely sterile disinterested way, we might produce more moral human beings. Now, the concept is ridiculous at its face. It has no scientific merit. I doubt that that was actually even the day-to-day -day point of view in Victorian times. But if you look at kind of what does that look like? You know, what would be the idea of saying, well, sex even among married couples is purely procreative. And it might go something like this, that the only sexual position used is the missionary position. That sex is only performed very late at night when, you know, the candles have been blown out and there's no, uh, you know, bright star or bright moon to shine through any windows to where you're dealing with as much of a pitch black bedroom as possible. 
that the woman is on bottom, still wearing as much clothes as possible, you know, a full nightgown that was only been lifted up for the purposes of, you know, uh, providing access where only necessary, you know, the, the limited amount of access. And that the man likewise uh, doesn't wander in naked so that if, if he falls asleep immediately after the sex act, that he is not exposing himself in a, in a lewd and lustful way in the morning sunlight, and neither would his wife. And that in this moment of darkness, in this missionary position, with two basically clothed people, there would be almost no talk either, and certainly no dirty talk either. An essentially silent bedroom where even a uh, an unintended or reflexive moan of pleasure and response would be considered a, a horrible mistake. What I'm getting at is that if I were to tell my, my wife that this example that I've just used of what some people kind of hold in the back of their head as an almost unconscious ideal of sorts, if I were to tell my wife that that was, that was a fantasy of mine that I really wanted to fulfill, that, that tonight we would do it exactly that way, lights out, missionary position, dressed as much as possible, no conversation whatsoever, she would probably rightly interpret that as the single most perverted thing that she had ever heard me tell her. Well, maybe. Close enough anyway. It is a perversion based on our current standard, which means that the things that some people suggest, the missionary position, the Puritan ideal, so forth and so on, would now, by our modern standards, be considered um, perverse in lots of ways. Perverse in the sense of not being truly intimate, for example. And the whole disconnectedness of it just feels uh, wrong, feels weird, feels almost obscene. At least that's my perspective, and so now I've perhaps revealed more of myself than I should. Well, why not? It's a show about perversion. So I think the Victorian ideal from where that was to where we are now gives us a sense of, of kind of what I want to get to. And that is that I do not believe that um, sexual orientation itself belongs in a classification like perversion. Because I think that within the realm of any sexual orientation, whether that be straight or gay or bisexual or whatever, perversion is something layered on top of that what we would call perversion, you know, the sense that, you know, you know, somebody needs to be dressed in pantyhose at all times or whatever, or uh, I can't do it unless you're wearing your high heels, honey, whatever those sort of things are that applies regardless of the sexual orientation. So the sexual orientation is one line on the axis, but this notion of turning away, this notion of, of sexual diversion is a different part of the scale. The, uh, the notion of perversion applies across all the other orientations. So I don't lump those two together. And in fact, I think we should be very dubious of those who do. On the other hand, it doesn't really help political conservatives to make the argument that anything other than a, a straight uh, orientation with a Puritan set of appetites is perverse. So let's say that, well, bisexuality is perverse. The problem that you get there is that I'm going to make the argument that there's a cause behind most of the activities that we would consider to fall in this fetish realm. And because that behavior has a cause to it, or it has a source of sorts, we have to decide whether we're going to blame the you know, mountain stream that gets stopped up by a group of beavers and then turns into a small lake or a big pond. Are we going to blame this change in course? from babbling brook to mountain pond on the water? Or do we instead say, no, something happened that's either natural or, you know, arguably not natural, not predictable, and then look back at that and say, well, you know, I can't blame the person for having this predilection because 
the things beyond that person's control is more the explanation. And if you have to attach blame to things, and I'm not necessarily in favor of that, but if you have to attach blame to things, wouldn't you blame the intervening act as opposed to the individual who has responded to the act in a way that we might find to be socially unusual? In other words, if we've got this gentle flowing mountain stream that has been stopped in its tracks because a very large and very, um, talented group of beavers has established some sort of dam up in the hills and that has turned this stream into more of a of a pond or a lake didn't the beavers do it and then the other question then is is the act of beavers gathering wood and blocking a body of water and creating a pond out of what what otherwise would not have been still water is that natural or unnatural The whole natural and unnatural argument to me is problematic on its face. To me, natural law is the description of those things which happen in nature. And uh, to to describe those things as good or bad seems a little bit irrational in the fable boiling point that I brought up really early on in these inappropriate conversations. I raised that idea that water boiling at a different temperature or at a different rate, uh, different altitudes or in different climates – that that's not because the water itself is perverse in any way. It's natural law. It's just an explanation. So we might say that, well, there's something unnatural about human beings erecting gigantic cement structures to block off rivers and turn them into, into reservoirs that they can then be used to uh, feed people a water supply that is uh, stable and isolated and therefore treatable, and also to generate hydroelectric power by releasing that water in a careful, controlled way. It's probably okay on some level to refer to that as sort of unnatural, that it would not have occurred in nature. But that doesn't get us to the place of saying that all dams or the act of damming is unnatural because beavers do it. And I'm going to say that the beavers are natural and the wood is natural and the water is natural. But the change in the water's behavior from being a stream to being a pond is only perverse in the sense that it's been turned off what otherwise would have been its course. And it can't possibly be a value judgment against the quality of the water or its moral value in our world. And those are words that I think I'd like us to consider as we just use maybe a couple different examples to kind of wander through some ideas of what we mean when we call something perverted. And what I want to do is I want to go straight to the chase and quote a book that I think I will read one day. I haven't purchased it yet, but I've heard interviews with the author. I've read some excerpts. I'm aware of this book, in other words. And to me, it strikes me as a frighteningly fascinating look into something that I otherwise, in my sort of Midwestern experience and upbringing, would not have otherwise encountered. In the interview that I heard, the author was introduced to somebody who had responded to an ad for a woman who is willing to engage in domination and role play where there's no sex with clients who pay for the service of being dominated and humiliated. And she worked for several years, like four years, I believe, in an actual fully functioning dungeon inside New York City where her clients, well, I'll let her tell the story. Here's a quote from Melissa Phoebos and her book, Whip Smart. Who pays to get peed on before their breakfast has been digested? It's a logical question, and one I've answered after nearly every explanation of my working hours. The day shift began at 10.30 a.m. on weekdays and ended at 5.30 p.m. Often I would arrive at the dungeon at 10.20 and already have a client waiting for me. It didn't take long to figure out that most of the patrons of the dungeon were not, as I had originally suspected, social outcasts who spent their time in the basement apartments fondling pet snakes and watching pornography. 
they were seemingly normal. The majority of them were married fathers, and they were nearly all professionally successful. My client base consisted of stockbrokers, lawyers, doctors, rabbis, grandpas, bus drivers, restaurateurs, and retirees. Getting peed on, spanked, sodomized, or diapered was less often a delicacy than a basic provision to these men. And while the need for it was compulsive, it was also routine. It was an itch that they had been compulsively scratching for many years, and it did not require an atmosphere of nighttime intoxication or grand fanfare. That is Melissa Phoebos from her book, Whip Smart, published in 2010 by Thomas Dunn Books. Hey, this is Harrison Ford. And when I'm not on a canal boat in the UK with my sexy other half, Ali McBeal, I'm listening to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Sin... Shit, where'd she go? Oh, it's okay. She just turned sideways. <laughs> I thought she'd fallen through a crack in the deck. Again. That's more like it, right? When it comes to perversion, the kind of thing we're expecting. Golden showers, uh, adult child gameplay, you know, things of that nature. And the thing that jumps out at me from, you know, the accounts in her book that I have read and from the interviews that I've heard is that there's a weird dynamic that goes on here. She doesn't deal, at least not in the parts that I've seen, with what has led to this change. What has created this itch that her clients had been scratching? And, of course, in the course of her memoir, scratching with her. But what is it about it that created the situation? Well, we don't really know, do we? But whatever we do know, it's going to be kind of like this idea of the mountain stream, where whatever it is, whether it be something you know, more uh, natural or ordinary, or something extraordinary happened, I don't think that it makes sense to blame the quote-unquote pervert. The example that I think that I would use for there is the, the pattern that we've seen in society of child molesters molesting other, you know, later growing up to molest children themselves. Um, and what makes it so difficult for us to deal with those kinds of issues are that you're dealing with a perpetrator who is lots of times also himself or herself, but more likely himself, a victim too. And so how do you untangle this mess? Well, the first thing I think I would do to untangle the mess is to declare a sort of Godwin's Law rule against the idea of referring immediately to pedophilia and bestiality whenever we're talking about things which are a little bit different or a little bit off course. So Godwin's Law is a kind of a debate technique that says that if the only way you can make an argument is to compare your opponent to Adolf Hitler or to Nazis, then you've already, you've already lost your argument. If you have no better nuance than that, if you're just playing the straw man game of saying, well, this person is quote unquote like Hitler, then Godwin's Law says that you should stop talking because you don't have anything to say. And I would suggest that comparing anybody, everybody who is sexually different or who has some sort of course they've taken, which is not um, consistent with what you'd expect from your mountain stream, suggesting that all those people are, quote unquote, the same as people who perform bestiality or people who are pedophiles is a Godwin's Law mistake. And it's one that we should check, one that we should challenge. Because, again, there are people out there who probably still believe, at least subconsciously, that the missionary position with the lights off is normal and everything else is abnormal have to deal with the fact that you want know within that context, in some ways, the missionary position with your clothes on and the lights off and no talking whatsoever is about as perverse as you could possibly get. So the line between normal and perverse here is a little bit odd. 
isn't it? In a society that values strong interpersonal relationships and intimate sexual encounters, it's a little bit odd. Um, so what I want to do is I want to say, well, let's, let's leave these things which are not involving consent and put them aside. And perhaps if we can, I mean, for those of you who can't, start working on it. Begin to grant the idea that every single time someone links homosexuality with bestiality or pedophilia or anything like that, you're making a gigantic category mistake and you ought to be embarrassed about it. So let's kind of leave that idea out there and say, we're not talking about things which are outside the realm of consenting behavior that the woman in this memoir consented to be paid a fairly good income to pretend to be a dominatrix for men who knew she was pretending, but wanted her to pretend well because her role play was an essential part of what they might have been willing to freely acknowledge was their perversion, but a perversion that didn't actually involve exploitation. If we go back to the rules that David R. Mace established in his book, The Christian Response to the Sexual Revolution, it's important to kind of line that up against some of these things which we are calling perverse. And I'm trying to identify them as perverse as a diversion and not necessarily as a judgment or a moral you know, a statement of what's right and what's wrong. David Mace said, hey, don't exploit people. Don't lie to people. Don't take advantage of them. Don't use them for your sexual purposes. So he's opposed to rape. He's equally opposed to people who pretend to be film producers so they can get uh, women to take their clothes off so they can take photography stills to get them into a movie. That's wrong, too. He's also opposed to the idea that there should be this concept of, of offending public standards, that if you need to, you know, cross-dress or whatever, don't, don't do it out of the mall. That sort of concept that if one of the things that you need to feel sexually satisfied is going to be upsetting to society. You don't have the right to upset society to do that thing. So this notion of community standards where um, the community has to be responsible, not to have standards that are so irresponsible that grown adults can't see each other naked, that a married couple has to pretend that they aren't attracted to each other. Again, that kind of weirdness that our Puritan roots might come across as being just as perverse as anything else. But on the other hand, there's things we put on billboards today that we probably shouldn't, that um, upsetting grandma for sport is in and of itself more offensive than most of the things that Melissa Phoebos would have described in her book. And the third one is, of course, take responsibility for children. So if you're taking responsibility for children, well, that rules out um, pedophilia completely. It kind of raises some questions about responsibility for childbirth and, and questions about birth control and abortion that we'll get to on another day. And it also, in my mind, ropes in bestiality as well, because the idea of taking responsibility for children isn't just that society is going to do well if children are cared for, if, if, if there are children and they're cared for. It's also the idea that there's a certain level of mental development for whom um, sexuality is going to be a problem. It's not going to be something that they can process. They're not mature enough for it. And, you know, bestiality would assume that you know, no animal is ever going to be mature enough for the willful, sexually aggressive act of a human being who's, you know, behaving, you know, in an incredibly uh, unacceptable manner. So if you kind of put all those things aside and say, yeah, there are rules here and those are good rules to go by. Let's just go with those three for now. Let's talk about the things that fall inside the realm of perversion that are not you know, bestiality, not, you know, the sort of, you know, flashers, none of those sort of things, things where uh, the behavior is 100% between consenting adults, or a person, an adult by himself or herself, where it's hard to attach a value judgment there in my mind. And one of the things that jumps out at me is the thing that makes the book uh, whip smart 
um, kind of be very interesting read when I when and if I ever get to it is the idea that she said that you know what at first she thought that this was going to be an interesting thing in terms of the empowerment of women because what you essentially have is a group of very powerful men and she refers to them as being rich and successful you'd have to be rich and successful to pay for this kind of service who were in essence most of the time engaging in sexual role play where they were submissive to a powerful woman so essentially taking um, what for their upbringing would have been society's uh, patriarchal sexism and misogyny and flipping it on its head to essentially saying that um, it may be in their workplace depending on how sexist their workplace might be, they might be in a situation where they're not interacting in a professional manner with women at all and that the women that they interact with have not been empowered and that these men have acquired some sort of a perversion where they're turning that on its head in the sexual sphere. And I'm guessing, and it's not appropriate to guess, but I'm going to guess anyway, that maybe these are also men who have your very traditional 50s housewife as a spouse Someone who you know, you know doesn't necessarily work or doesn't necessarily have a career focus, you know, takes care of the kids, maintains a strong household, and they're not they're not going to ask what they're getting in this dungeon from the woman that they've that they've pledged in marriage to. That you have that sort of a diversion as well. But what Phoebo said was, as she went through the process of working in the dungeon for a time, and initially kind of thinking through the ideas of whether this was sort of a sex role reversal in terms of the empowerment of men versus women, at least from a strictly sexual perspective, she got back to the idea at the end that, hang on a second, this is still commerce at the end of the day. I am still a woman being paid by a powerful man to pretend to be in a sexually powerful position over this man. Maybe it isn't a sex role reversal after all. Maybe there's a layer upon layer here where this is still, on some level, fairly misogynistic. Because I don't really have a choice but to pretend to have a sexual power over someone that I really don't actually have. And even that sexual power itself might not by itself represent the genuine equality of the sexes. A more genuine equality of the sexes would be to go back to that original idea of a couple in their bedroom where I assumed in my opening story that it was going to be the man who showed up to suggest to his wife that there was something really, really kinky and weird he wanted to do. Uh, kinky, weird in a Puritan sense, missionary position, lights out, so forth and so on. It begged the question that at no point would the woman be the one saying, okay, here's what I want to do. It's going to be strange, but I need you to do this for me. Because we assume that the, the men are the drivers of most of these things. And I'm wondering that assumption has any sort of physiological or psychological validity to it, or if we are still conditioned to think that way through centuries of assumptions about sexual behavior that we haven't undone yet, and that we're not going to undo inside some sort of a dungeon. But perversion goes far beyond this notion of things that people do sexually that they don't talk about. It's not just a concept of kink or fetish. Perversion, to me, is any time you're taking something that is on a course, especially a course that we might assume would be the natural or predictable course, and take it off in a different direction. A force is applied to it, and especially when that force is unexpected, when somebody doesn't intend a result, but the result happens. So I'm going to close this with one more story today, and it's a story of a distinctly non-sexual nature. Don't worry, if the sex talk is interesting, our different drummers are going to bring a lot of that back in an uncomfortable way. But I had a conversation with a boss 
and our human resources and benefits and and payroll department had made a policy change for many years. This was a company that I worked for for quite some time. For many years, the policy was that during the course of working a year, you earned your vacation time. So if you uh, you were maybe you worked the first year with no vacation time, and, the, and then after one year of working, you picked up you know five days of vacation. And a few years later, if you continue working, you, you get 10 days of vacation because the, the divisible by five is important. That gives you that full working week off, five-day work week. And the idea was that after you'd worked a certain amount of time, you had earned that time off. And if you quit during the year that you had vacation and you hadn't used the vacation, you were paid for it because at the beginning of the year, you'd earned the vacation from the time that you'd worked in the previous year. This is probably still a pretty common model in places, but my understanding from talking with lots of people is that there's, there's a new model out there. And sometimes the new model is based less on a vacation system and more on what we might call a paid time off system where you accrue time as you go, where instead of you work a year and then you get five days off at the end of the year, you're working the year. And after every month you get, you know, three fourths of a day off. To where in the course of working an entire year, you pick up, you know, eight or nine days, but you're earning those days as you go. So if at any point during the year you quit, you don't quit having earned what would be the entire nine day plan for you. You quit getting the prorated piece of the amount of time that you'd earned as you went. Well, the company that I was working at changed the policy in an interesting way, and it was different than either one of the systems that I've suggested so far. It used to be that you work the whole year, you pick up your five days. But in this case, what happened was if you work that whole year and you pick up the five days and you quit in the first three months of the next year, you don't get that time. That that time is prorated to you. So even though you started the year with five vacation days, you don't get all five days. You don't get any of the five days if you quit in the first three months. If you quit in the next three months, you might get paid for two of the days and so forth and so on and so forth and so on. So prorated through the year. And that change had impacts that I don't think my boss anticipated. We had an employee who, based on his initial starting point on his contract, um, he was actually a peer of mine, come to think of it, but he was an employee of, of, the, of the person I worked for. He had uh, come in with like 10 vacation days, and he'd worked for a couple of years, and he'd picked up 15 now. So he had started this, crossed this threshold, and he's in a fiscal year where he has 15 days of vacation available to him. And uh, he, again, if he quits before the end of the first quarter, he gets to keep none of those days. He gets paid off for none of them. Even if he quits after the first uh, six months of the year, he's not even going to get half of them. And all of a sudden, he comes in and says that he's acquired a house. You know, when the whole uh, housing bubble burst, there were a lot of very cheap real estate opportunities out there. And if you picked up one of those cheap real estate opportunities you would in essence be setting yourself up with a unique fixer-upper opportunity where you're probably going to have to replace carpet and paint walls and maybe even replace plumbing because these houses that were foreclosed and abandoned may not have been in the perfect shape when they actually were abandoned by people who couldn't pay um, who couldn't pay their mortgage. But then the, you add in neglect to that, and you got a real problem on your hands. So um, let's call this guy Sam. Sam picks up this property. And he needs to spend time renovating it. So over the course of the first three months of the next fiscal year, he ends up burning almost all of his vacation time. And we didn't think anything of it because obviously he had this problem. Uh, He knew he was going to pick up enough income off the rental property that he was trying to generate that it wasn't necessarily going to be a big deal to him if he burned all of his time off. So he goes through the first couple of months. 
uses two and a half of his weeks, comes in, submits a paid time off form for a long weekend that would effectively use up the rest of his vacation time and simultaneously turns in his two-week notice. He's got another job somewhere and he's leaving the company. My boss was livid. Color flushed to her face, fiery, steely eyes. If, look, if looks could kill, laser beams would have been flying all over the building. And her problem was, how dare this guy, you know, deceive her and take advantage of things and, and, and you know, cheat the system by using all of his PTO time in the first quarter. And trying to be the voice of reason, I told her, you know, is there anything inherently wrong with somebody using all of their PTO time? This way, taking all of their vacation in the first quarter. Said no. Said we could have a system if we wanted to talk to human resources about it where you earn the time as you go and therefore all the time you earn you can get cashed out as a benefit paid when you leave. But you can't earn all 15 days at once. We wouldn't have had all 15 days to take off. But he came in to a company with a system that if he had left after two years, he would have been paid for all the vacation he hadn't had a chance to use yet. And when the company told him, we are now no longer going to pay you, Sam, for the hours that you did not take off, well, is it really a perversion for him to use all that time off before he quits? If he's going to quit anyway and would like to get paid for the benefits that he perceives he has quote-unquote earned, is it really a perversion for him to have taken all that vacation time before he gave his notice? Or would there on some level be something really foolish or perverse about him if he didn't do that? In other words, like a group of beavers, our human resources department had set up a dam in the vacation policy that had pooled all of this water together and encouraged this employee to use his vacation time in the exact manner that he did. Now, to my boss, this was still an unmitigated act of perversion, and she couldn't get past it, and she was deeply offended by it. It was like he had flashed her in the parking lot with his trench coat open. But at the end of the day, there was no talking her out of her point of view, because, again, it was her budget. It was her situation, and she perhaps had supported this policy change in the hope that it would give her some sort of leverage that now she had learned didn't really work. And all I told her was, hey, you can take some solace. She says, what kind of solace can I take in this situation? So you can take the solace in knowing that you did not hire a complete idiot. Perhaps bold words, maybe confrontational words, but it was a compliment. Hey, you're a smart person. You're a good manager. You're hiring very bright individuals. You hired somebody who wasn't so dumb as to deprive himself of the financial opportunity of allowing our company to pay for his time that he used to renovate a house that was going to become the income stream that protected him from moving from one job to another in the first place. Your job is to hire intelligent people who are bright and creative and resourceful. You've accomplished that. Your issue is not with Sam. Your issue is with the policy. The policy perhaps is perverse, but not Sam.
For those of you who understand the music of David Allen Coe, his selection for a show about perversion is probably going to make complete sense. And if not, let me introduce you to Outlaw Country and the music of David Allen Coe. And the song that I played right at the beginning with our drummer music is a pretty good example of it. Uh, the combination of being, you know, kind of an outlaw, kind of a biker with long hair, earrings, tattoos, and yet writing country music songs that were performed by uh, artists like uh, Tanya Tucker, really reverential, traditional country style. Being somebody, he describes himself in the song, Long-Haired Redneck, as someone who can, who can sing all the slow songs, who can sing the crooners, who knows every song Hank Williams Sr. ever wrote. Um, this is somebody who, uh, he calls himself a rhinestone cowboy, very much in the Glen Campbell tradition, perhaps not as much in the David Hasselhoff tradition, but somebody who is capable of being very traditional country, but not traditional enough for the country DJs to come watch him perform live, because a uh, David Allen Coe live performance is going to include songs that made him famous, like You Never Even Call Me By My Name, but it's also like to, likely to include songs that made him infamous, because David Allen Coe, in perhaps the most traditional sector of popular music today, had the audacity to make recordings long before the Parents Music Resource Center ever suggested that we have parental warning labels. You see, probably the most parental warning label sticker-worthy CDs or albums at the time, or tapes at the time, that had been released in my lifetime came not from rock and roll music, and certainly not from heavy metal music. They came from country music, and they came from David Allen Coe. In 1978, and later in 1982, he put out albums that, to my knowledge, were only really sold at the time in truck stops, because the uh, record label that he was working with uh, would not release these songs, would not even record them for the purpose of him releasing them. And he was not put in a position of, of having a good distribution channel through record stores or anything else. These were underground recordings in every sense of the word. And perhaps not even ironically, one of the albums was actually called Underground Album, and the other one, Nothing Sacred. Here are some of the song titles I'm going to refer to from a quote-unquote hits collection of these works called 18 X-Rated Hits. I'm going to skip some of them because, frankly, some of the song titles are offensive enough that I don't even, for at least racially offensive enough, that I don't want to have anything to do with them. In fact, the Wikipedia entry words it this way. Co-recorded two albums in 1978 and 1982 containing racist and misogynist lyrics of extreme vulgarity and racial crudity. Nothing Sacred, an underground album, and also available as a best-of compilation. Co defended the songs as body fun, which never made him much money, as well as uh, pointing out that his drummer at the time was a black man and married to a white woman, so he wasn't referring to things in a negative way because he had a social, um, a racist social worldview. He was simply playing with the ideas and, frankly, being offensive. I'm going to introduce the idea when I get done covering some of his song lyrics, or song titles at least, is the idea of in for a dime, in for a dollar. And we can tie that notion uh, back to the question of perversion. What Again, what would lead you to take a personal, private fetish that you may not even be sharing with your wife, into a professional dungeon to pay a professional dominatrix to play out with you. The concept probably has a lot to do with in for a dime, in for a dollar. David Allen Coe's song titles includes Whips and Things, Come Stains on the Pillow, Pussy Whipped Again, Linda Lovelace, that referring to the actress from the X-rated film Deep Throat, uh, Little Susie Shallow Throat, Pick'em, Lick'em, Stick'em, Don't Bite the Dick, Masturbator Blues. 
These are the sorts of things that David Allen Coe was recording for a record label that uh, was essentially his own. A self-released, self-recorded, tapes at the truck stop, truck drivers can listen to them, and the rarity of them made them famous enough that they're still on the radar today. You had a man who recorded more than 30 albums of music. You probably think of David Allen Coe today more as a singles writer. Songs like You Never Even Call Me By My Name, Would You Lay With Me In A Field Of Stone, Long-Haired Redneck, which I shared a little bit of, Mona Lisa Lost Her Smile, Willie Whalen and Me. These are the kind of things where you know most people probably understand David Allen Coe less as an album artist and more as a singles artist. But once he decided to go down the direction of writing songs with these kinds of titles, it wouldn't matter. They could be all instrumental. And Nashville at the time was going to want nothing to do with a song called Pussy Whipped Again. Now, do I enjoy and like and recommend the music of David Allen Coe? Well, um, some of the songs that I just mentioned a minute ago, yes. I didn't share an example from the song Long Haired Redneck because I don't like it. I think it's a very good song and a very good representation of all of Outlaw Country, not uh, the style of music, not just David Allen Coe's music. And you don't really enjoy country music, in my mind, if you don't like You Never Even Called Me By My Name. David Allen Coe forced additional verse at the end, which is actually part of the song itself. Just you know, a fantastic example of, of country as a cliche and conscious enough of country cliches to play with it with a wink and a smile. That's David Allen Coe at his best. You know, I was drunk the day my ma got out of prison and I went to pick her up in the rain. But before I could get to the station in my pickup truck, she got run over by a damned old train. I mean, that's that's a good, self-knowing, self-aware sense of humor. The song Pussy Whipped Again is basically, well, I don't know much of the song except the chorus, I believe, is, is Pussy Whipped Again, a fine mess I got myself in, trying to be your buddy, trying to make a woman my friend. Well, and knowing anything about me at all, you'd have to know that I'm 180 degrees from that worldview. That first of all, I don't perceive all male-female relationships as sexual. Second, I don't think that um, having a woman as a friend is a, is a problem or a big deal. I certainly don't see having a woman as a friend as a, a means to an end by which to get some action later on. So everything that he's assuming in the song to be true and that he's complaining about in the lyrics has you know nothing to do with me. Perhaps the most offensive of the ones I've heard, which is not all of them, by any stretch, is pick 'em, lick 'em, stick 'em. And it's offensive for lots of reasons. First, he's essentially taken the musical trope of the gambler from Kenny Rogers. So you got to know when to hold 'em, know when to fold 'em, know when to walk away, know when to run. That country song, The Gambler, and turned it into this sexual song. You got to know when to pick 'em, son, know when how to lick 'em, son, you know, all that sort of, you know, and stick 'em between the thighs, all that sort of talk. But the worst part about it is the song includes a lyric later where the guy that he's talking to is relating the story of him having a different set of instructions for his daughter. So just having the conversation with his daughter at all that includes lines like no how to suck him is, you know, it's problematic. Let's just put it that way. It's a conversation that I, I don't want to be a part of overhearing because it makes sense on one level that if the character in the song is talking to his son about um, pick him, lick him, stick him, that there would be a corresponding list, but just off the scale creepiness. So again, do I, do I have a different drummer here who is a different drummer for no other reason than breaking the rules? Maybe. Because again, there's a few songs out there that I think as, as a songwriter, he deserves a great deal of credit for. And I think that somebody who's gone in a life path from being somebody who was on the outside to being on the inside and still finding a way to speak to people who would rather hear prison stories than 
good, clean-cut, George Strait country who would rather hear um, angry stories, who don't mind uh, hearing curse words in their country music, those sorts of things. Uh, we can call this perverse if we want to, but to me, the biggest perversion that would lead to actually having a song you know, called Come Stains on My Pillow is that whatever David Allen Coe might have wanted to have expressed inside the Nashville system of country music, he wasn't going to be allowed to do. So as soon as he was told that it, he couldn't put a song called Pussy Whipped Again on his album, even if he worded it differently, even if he worded it nicely, still expressing the idea that he wasn't having good times or good success, um, engaging in relationships with women where he was making the conversion from friendship to a sexual relationship or a marital relationship, he wasn't going to be allowed to express those ideas because that's not what the country DJs wanted to hear. So instead, self-producing his own album, essentially being out on his own, you go from one extreme to the other. Because if you're making your own music and you don't have a producer saying, hey, you're never going to get away with that, well, then you can get away with almost anything, can't you? I made the observation in the writings that I did, I believe it was the Different Drummer journal that I wrote, late college, after college even, where I made the observation that the the mind practices a form of censorship by giving out too much information. We normally think of censorship as being the restriction of information, that you draw a line somewhere and you don't go past it. But sometimes censorship has a different approach, where if you give out too much information, if you share too much too freely, if a poem becomes too personal, if a song becomes too explicit, it gets to the point where now none of it can be shared, that the entire document, the whole book, has to be held to a very limited distribution because the ideas in it are too strong or too personal or too risky for a wider distribution. And the issue there is not that you held back and therefore you censored yourself in a prior restraint kind of a way. No, the issue here is that by sharing too much too freely, the censorship hits you on the distribution side. Hence, David Allen Coe's music only available at the time in truck stops and still not the kind of thing that I think you're going to be able to dial up in your local mall record store if there even is a local mall record store anymore. But at the same time, he was able to go that far because he was outside the system enough that no one was going to tell him no uh, from a prior restraint perspective. And to me, that's interesting that David Allen Coe is an artist who has made a great deal of money and has a really strong reputation still these days in country music circles, had his reputation as a, as a country songwriter and for the hits that he produced, especially in the um, 70s and 80s, still hold up his kind of Hall of Fame credentials, despite the fact that he made this kind of recording. But maybe this kind of recording has helped that reputation. Because if you're going to be, you know, clean-cut all-American country, guest star on the Lawrence Welk show someday, well then, this isn't going to work. But if you're going to be outlaw country, if you're going to be the kind of guy that says, you know what, country DJs all think I'm an outlaw, and they're never going to come see me in this dive, where bikers stare at cowboys who are laughing at the hippies who are praying they get out of here alive. The kind of guy who would say that he's won every fight he's ever fought. He's not going to care one way or the other whether he's making his record label happy. I've heard David Allen Coe's concert performances described as a mixed bag, and sometimes you go and you don't hear the songs you want to hear at all. But I've also heard other people say that at other times in the concerts, a man who doesn't have a set list, who isn't listening to the marketing department, and who isn't, also isn't necessarily listening to his audience call out requests for songs, if he's in a groove, 
if he's feeling creative and if his uh, band can follow up with him, you could get to a David Allen Coe concert and find yourself in the midst of two and a half hours of almost straight up improvisation. Not improvisation in the sense of making up the lyrics or making up the songs as you go, but improvisation in the sense of the song that we just played has now led me to think of another song that I otherwise wouldn't have thought of and let's go there instead. We have live performers in rock music that we esteem for this reason. Their ability to say, hang on a second, let's play this one. And maybe it's more of a folk music quality that we, we think that way. You know, uh, the uh, more legendary performances of Bruce Springsteen and his group and we don't think of Bruce Springsteen as being a folk singer uh, anymore. For a couple of albums, we would have. But we don't think of him as being a folk singer. But maybe he still has some of those roots that says, you know what, maybe I should play Mary, Queen of Arkansas here out of the blue. And if the band thinks they can do it, let's just go for it. That's what a David Allen Coe concert, a good one, can be like. A bad one can, of course, be just as upsetting or just as disappointing as someone who goes in expecting to pick up an album with You Never Even Called Me By My Name and instead picks up little Susie's shallow throat. That would leave kind of a bad feeling or a bad taste in your mouth, for want of a better word. I guess anyone who thought that maybe I would be talking about the causes of these sort of perversions and, and speaking in terms of what our options are and how we can do something about it is going to be a little bit disappointed because I don't think that there necessarily is anything that we can do about it. I don't know that as a society we're interested or equipped to identify those causes, and I'm wondering if it's even possible to do so. Uh, I mentioned once before, if you set up a system where the only way that a young man who's becoming sexually aware, sexually interested, can see a woman who is in anything other than, you know, full burqa attire, uh, is to watch women's volleyball, then you're going to find women's volleyball being uh, a sexual thing. You will sexualize what is otherwise a sport in a way that hasn't already been sexualized, simply because if that's the only outlet, that's where the eyes are going to go. That's where the attention is going to shift. So from a young lover's perspective, and I don't want to put too much color to this because you know, I'm going to find a way to draw a line where somebody could get offended. So if I talk teenagers, that's potentially offensive because if you're not at least 18, that's problematic. I could talk about people in college, but then that sort of, that's kind of a, a stereotype as well. Let's just go with young lovers. If a group of young lovers, for whatever reason, societal pressure, their own um, moral upbringing, whatever reason, decide that they're not going to engage openly in sexual practice, um, what happens when the line is drawn and there's gaps between where I am today and where that line is. In other words, what happens if you get to a, you can look, but you can't touch mentality. Have you not then just crept right into the area of peeping Tom and voyeur? Or what if you, you can touch here, but not there. We start talking about first base, second base, third base. Don't we? When in fact the whole game has a lot to do with kissing, not just being a first base thing and touching, not just being a second base thing. The true love making is all of those things. But what if for an extended period of time, months, years, even an individual's only accessibility to the opposite sex, whatever that may be, the, the person that he's attracted to. So again, you can remove arbitrary distinctions about homosexual behavior and bisexual behavior and heterosexual behavior. Whoever you're attracted to, how much time are you going to spend in the paradigm as a young lover of being in a look-but-don't-touch mentality before you develop a 
response that we might describe as a diversion or even a perversion that later in life looking and not touching becomes a strange form of sexual predilection or touching but not looking. These sorts of very simple things to say, you know what, we've set a line here and it's very important that you, that you never see the person that you're eventually going to marry naked until the wedding night and therefore the only thing you're going to see her in a, is a swimsuit. At what point could that turn into a perversion later where the guy has the secretly harbored fantasy about having sex with his wife while she's wearing a swimming suit. It's those sorts of examples that we would use. And as long as society has parameters around proper sexual behavior, which we will, but as long as we have those parameters where those different touch points are going to lead to a state of desire and denial, that if you take it to its extreme, leads to submission and denial, like the book Whip Smart describes, but even when it's not in the extreme, at what point is foreplay an actual preparation for an intimate sexual intercourse? And at what point is foreplay simply tapping in to those early moments in the dating process where you know desire and denial were necessary? We're never going to get away from, from perversion. If you're standing at the side of a powerful roaring river and you look up one side of the horizon and down the other side of the horizon, it's extremely likely that at any point in the bank you might be standing, it's going to seem like the river itself runs in a straight line. There might be a subtle curvature, but not the kind of thing you would expect to pick up on a map. That the river itself, especially if it's a powerful river, is going to seem to be flowing from one end to the other. And yet when you get to a map and look at a very well-designed you know, topographical example of what you've just seen, of the place you've just stood, the river's going to curve and bend and squiggle a great deal. Each one of those squiggles might look subtle on a map and might be indecipherable when you're that close to the water. But from high enough up, you can see that that river has had to bend and curve and reset a path all the way through. Things which are absolutely and unmistakably natural divert the course of any river. And maybe that's an idea we should hold in our head when we think judgmentally about what it means to call something perverted. That, of course, is my opinion. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, the comments are enabled where the show notes can be found at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. I also can be reached via email at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Please stay tuned after the theme for a public service announcement. And thanks for listening. Music by Kevin McLeod. Hey everyone, it's Ian or Kano1988 from the forums. Uh, you might have already heard, but I'm uh, doing a sponsored skydive for Macmillan Cancer Support. So if any of you can help in any way, uh, donating even as little as a quid, that would be brilliant. Uh, if you can go to www.justgiving.com slash ian-pope. Uh, there are also links through Simply Read, uh, so if you can uh, get on there, that would be wonderful. Thanks very much, guys. <laughs>